What is God saying in the snow? That's what we want to talk about now. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, you can just listen if you don't, to Job chapter 38. You remember the story of Job, how he suffered so deeply, questioned God's wisdom in allowing so much into his life, and his friends gave him bad advice until a young man, Elihu, stood up and gave good advice. And then when Elihu is done, chapters 32 to 37, God speaks. And God's approach to Job is, strangely, to call his attention to nature. And throughout these first chapters of God's speech, to basically say, you're not such a hot shot. You don't know much. Humble yourself. Let me read the first four verses and then jump farther down. I'm reading the first several verses of Job 38 just to give you the flavor of what God is up to. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And the implication surely is uh, you weren't there and therefore you don't know much. Now, jump down with me to verse 22. He keeps on asking him question after question in this way. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen... The storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Now, my first answer to the question, what is God saying in the snow, is God is saying to Bethlehem and to the Twin Cities and to Minnesota, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You didn't make it snow. I made it snow, God said. You couldn't stop it from snowing, and I wouldn't let you if you thought you could. I made it snow. I stopped the state. I control this world. If you had any ideas that you were in charge here, take note. I rule. Humble yourselves under my hand. I think that's the first point God wants us to hear from Job 38 echoing off of the snow outside. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? You haven't entered in. You haven't taken charge. You don't run these skies. You don't move the wind. You can't control the wind. And where I position my clouds, I do. Minneapolis, on your face before me. I am God. We are absolutely dependent on God for everything. Jesus said in John 15:5, without me, you can do nothing. I give to all men life and breath and everything. Turn with me, if you want to, to James chapter 4. There's a word about arrogance in James, which is the opposite of humility. 
And arrogance shows itself in our lives in a surprising way. And it has to do with snow and whether you get to where you're going. I, I'm going to have to raise your hand. If, if you had to change your plans in any way because of this snow, would you raise your hand? Okay. This is a relevant text then. James 4, 13. Today or tomorrow, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain, whereas you don't know about tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say on Thursday, if the Lord wills, we will live and on Friday we shall do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Now, what's the arrogance in this text? The arrogance is thinking on Thursday that you know what's going to happen on Friday. That's arrogant. It's not a small thing. When you're asked a question, if you're going to do something to say, I plan to, or I intend to, or Lord willing, I will. You don't always have to put it into words, but it ought to be in your head. Because God rules Friday on Thursday. We don't. And it is arrogant. It is just shot through the human race to think that we've got tomorrow in charge. We plan it out. The men's retreat is going to be about God's purposes and a man's plans. What a great lesson we have just had about a man. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs where he goes on Friday, Saturday. So the first word spoken by the Lord last Thursday night was humble yourself, Minneapolis. Open your eyes to the fact that I'm in charge. And if you do anything this very afternoon, it'll be because I ordain it and work it. Secondly, Turn with me back now to uh, Job 37. Let's read about a thunderstorm here. Starting at verse 1, thunder and rain and snow. Job 37, 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Hearken. To the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings. When his voice is heard, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says... Fall on the earth, and to the shower and the rain, be strong. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. I think that means he, he shuts you up so that you can't go to work, can't do your hand's labor. 
Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn round and round by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for now notice here are my next three answers. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Now, literally, some of you have different translations here, but let me give you the literal translation. It's whether for the rod. Then some paraphrase correction and other things rod or for his land. Or for love. It's three distinct or, or, or phrases, no matter what the NIV or other translations do by way of paraphrasing to fit them together. It's three things. Rod, land, love. So let's take them one at a time. These are three words, three things God wants to do through that snow. He commanded it to happen for three purposes. Let's take the first one. Rod. Correction or punishment or rebuke. And it could be to his enemies and it could be to his children. Uh, Dean out shoveling with Abraham or Ben or whoever it was. One of them came in and told me Dean's interpretation of what happened Thursday night. Namely, it was Halloween and uh, the Lord looked down and there were some churches praying against the magic and the hocus pocus and the witchcraft that goes on on Halloween. And they were praying that God would stop it and that God would undo all the black magic. And so God said, all right, I have an idea how to do that. So I'll dump 28 inches of white snow (laughs) on all that black magic. And I don't doubt that that was part of it. God had some things he wanted to punish, some things he wanted to stop. But it also caused us to change our plans. So we have a witch, satanic church this morning saying the same thing I'm saying. They brought the snow so we couldn't have church this morning. And if you turn to... You know, Hebrews 12, it said, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord and do not despise his chastening for the Lord disciplines every one whom he loves and he chastises every child whom he receives. And so whether the rod in God's hand Thursday night and Friday was the rod of punishment for his enemies or the rod of discipline and chastisement in love for his children, we must interpret according to which group we're in. If you're a child of God this morning, you may take all the interruption of your plans as God's chastisement. He has a loving chastisement for us. Frustration 
has a chastising effect in our lives, and he means for us to experience that. So that's rod. The second thing is he speaks a word of rebuke. Third, the land, it says in verse in verse uh, 13, for a rod or for his land. Now, what does that mean? I think that the third word that the Lord wants us to hear is land, be blessed, land, work, land, be moisturized, land, be warmed. I was out shoveling the front uh, walk yesterday morning. And I wondered what it was going to be like. And uh, I don't know if your walk was like this, but my walk was, oh, 12, 13 inches because the way it was blowing. And underneath, temporarily an ally of Britain and numerous other European countries, and uh, was driving the Russian troops back. And I just want you to imagine what the world would have been like had Hitler succeeded in taking the entire USSR for his own. You know what stopped him? The Russian winter. They fought well and they won until the winter set in in December of 41. And it ended. God ended it. God stopped Hitler with the snow and the cold on the Russian frontier. And now we say, well, yeah, but it didn't stop communism. Well, give him time. Give him time. God does things in his own time and his own way. And now communism has its bad suit. The other way that the snow causes love is by creating in us feelings that we might not have any other way. Why do people sing songs like, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas? Or I suggested a song this morning at a certain point in the service, and, and Dean said, should it be, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow? I said, no, we'll save that for another time, Dean. But why do we sing songs like that? Why, why did Robert Frost write this poem? I bet all of you have read this poem. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and snowy, downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Snow did that. The snow did that. And the snow does it here. And that's the love of God on your life. So that's the fourth thing God is saying. Feel loved. The fifth thing he's saying is, echo back my excellency, O world. We read Psalm 148. I think it would be good to just look at two of those verses again. Psalm 148. It says uh, in verses 7 and 8, Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, 
stormy wind fulfilling his command. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's he's looking down at the snow and he's saying, praise the Lord, snow. He looks into the ocean and he sees big giant squid and he says, praise the Lord, you giant squid and you blue whales. Praise the Lord. Now, what does he mean? They don't have voices. He means, I think, echo back to me my excellence. Let me behold in you how things are working and how marvelous is all the things that I have made. Just mirror back to me for my own enjoyment what I have done. Praise the Lord, all you works of creation. God's wisdom and power are echoed in the snow. I got out my encyclopedia and read the article on snow last night, which is not a very inspiring thing to read. It's just so scientific. And yet, if you've got a a mind at all to, to care about what God does, that scientists spend their time putting labels on and think they've accomplished something, then you, you, you do discover some amazing things. I thought it was just sort of folklore that every snowflake is different. But this scientific article said that evidently it was true. It would be hard to prove, you know, wouldn't it? No, no test tube would ever work to prove that every snowflake is different. But they said that it's likely the case and there are needles and there are columns and there are plates and there are little things called grapple, which I have no idea what that is. And the, and the remarkable thing that just was full of symbolic significance for me was that just like with raindrops, every snowflake forms around a speck of dust. Hmm, dust, yuck. I don't like dust. And yet I like snow. And every snowflake is God's encasement of, of dirt. And that's the way God is, I think. He, he looks down and he doesn't just look at dust and say, oh, dust, yuck. There's no purpose for dust. I can't do anything with dust. Let's just get rid of dust. Instead, he looks at it and, and thinks, I think I'll make snow. I'll make snow out of dust. I just think that's marvelous. I think that's the praise of the Lord echoing back to himself. The sixth thing the Lord says in the snow is come together. Now, I said this already at the welcome. Let me just say it again. I was shoveling yesterday morning and I had more contact with my neighbors in a half an hour yesterday morning than in the previous two months. I was shoveling and uh, people had to walk in the street instead of on the sidewalk and everybody that walked by stopped. And made a comment about snow. Comment about not having a car. Comment about the bus. Comment about this. And so I was able to talk with everybody that came by. Snow made that happen. Snow brings people together. Shared hardship brings people together. One old man that I've uh, befriended here at the church and in the neighborhood came walking down the street in his slippers and in his old coat with a staff and with drool frozen on his beard and said he and his wife uh, had no food and the check didn't come because the mail didn't come, so they had no stamps and uh, could get some help through the weekend. 
And we gave him a bag of groceries, and he went happily on his way and said, Now we got food in the house. Thank you, Reverend. And uh, then there were the people to push out because 18th Street wasn't plowed. And, uh, boy, you want to you wanna make Jesus known, you can just uh, send your 14-year-old out. No. <laughs> I mean 16. 16-year-old. <laughs> it was great to see Benjamin running back up down the street. So God means to force to come together in some real special ways. The seventh thing, I'm almost done now. The seventh thing that he wants us to hear is uh, a remnant will do. A remnant will do. Here's what I mean by that. You remember about six years ago when we got totally snowed out the first Sunday of December, didn't have any service at all, and we needed we needed about $30,000 or $40,000 a Sunday to meet budget. And so God took away one of our Sundays. And Steve Roy wrote the article in the Star about Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? The Amalekites again lined up like locusts. Hundreds of thousands of them. He has 22,000 men and God says that's too many. So tell all of them that feel a little bit afraid to go home. And about 10,000 go home. He said still too many. And he found a way to test them. And so he got it down to 300. He said that's good. That'll do. That's how many I want to use. The remnant. I got a letter from David Buck down in the Abilene, Kansas jail. He's doing time there for rescuing in Wichita. And he made a comment that was an overstatement. And I wrote him a letter and I, I, I want him to, to be encouraged, more encouraged than his statement allowed. He said, uh, he said abortion, I think, won't come to an end until... I forget the exact wording, but the idea was until the whole church is willing to really sacrifice. And I wrote back and said, it'll never happen ever. You, you can't say that only battles will be won by every lukewarm pew sitter getting hot. It'll never happen. There will always be lukewarm, selfish people in the church who aren't the least interested in sacrificing anything for anybody. But a remnant wins. That's what I wrote to us. It doesn't take the whole church. It never has taken the whole church. It won't take the whole church to finish the Great Commission. It'll take a remnant, a faithful, red-hot, wild-eyed, sacrificing remnant will finish the various jobs that need to be done. So don't be discouraged if you look around, David, in the churches of America and see a lot of self-satisfied people who just want to be comfortable and secure and not take any risks at all for anything, let alone saving babies from being chopped up in pieces. The word about the snow is a remnant will do on Sunday morning. We don't need everybody here. A remnant will do for whatever cause that needs to be done if the remnant is white hot. If the remnant is alive, if the remnant has seen God and loves him, the remnant will win Gideon victories when the snow cuts our forces. And finally, the eighth thing, which leads us to the table now, is I think the Lord is saying, uh, be still, be still, and look at the symbols all around you of 
purity. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as wool, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. One of the reasons the snow is out there and one of the reasons you got socked in on Friday was so that you'd be still and know that he is God and think and pray and look at the word. And so I want us to to close the service at the Lord's table with a sense of stillness. I want you to go to the table now asking the question, how have I been loved in these days? How have I been disciplined in these days? How have I been humbled in these days? Lord, I'm until Pastor John said this, I haven't even asked you what you've been saying. And I'm sorry, but now I'm asking, what do you want to say to me? Because I think that when something this amazing happens to this many people, it's the Lord wanting to say some new things to you. I think the Lord in stopping the city... And in stopping you is not doing it in vain. <laughs> sure not so that you can watch more television. I promise you that. It, it's so that you can pause and fill up that extra time and that new sense of uh, unusualness about the days with God. A listening ear is what we need right now as we close this service. And so... I'm going to invite Dean to come and lead us in a song that's a a prayer in that direction. And then we'll come to the table and enjoy remembering what the Lord did to make our sins as white as snow.